Welcome to this podcast by The Rocks Church. We hope you find it challenging and inspiring. For more information, visit therocks.church. Alrighty, well, good morning, beautiful people. That's right, I'm talking about you. Come on, you know you're beautiful. <laughs> don't pretend you don't know it. Turn to your neighbour and say, you are ridiculously good looking. <laughs> Definitely way better looking than the nine o'clock service, I'll just say. <laughs> They're a good looking bunch, but you are ridiculously good looking. Hey, good to be together again and a uh, big warm welcome to all of you. Uh, what a privilege to have this time and this opportunity to be together again and to just enjoy worship and open up the scriptures and enjoy one another's company. This really is a gift and it's a privilege. And I just feel such a deep sense of gratitude this morning for the opportunity to, to do this. And I hope we never take it for granted, right? This is a wonderful privilege. And, uh, and so let's maximize the moment this morning. And if you are joining us today for the first time, as Pete said, we're in the, uh, the, the final iteration of this six-part series that is titled Faithful, How to Fuel Your Faith in a world on empty and we've been talking about what faith is and how to strengthen yours and over the course of the last six weeks we've said some pretty important things about the nature and the purpose of faith and so primarily for the benefit of those of you who have missed all or part of the series and I guess also for the benefit of those of you who've been here for every single part of it um, I want to give you my uh, kind of rapid fire review this is my like bullet point summary of the five kind of most important things that we've said about faith over the course of the last six weeks. And I'm not going to elaborate extensively on these. I just want to mention them, remind you of them, draw your attention to them. So these are five of what I consider to be the most important things anyone can hear about the subject of faith. Here they are. Number one, faith focuses on the object, not the outcome. Uh, we said that in the context of faith life and Christianity, faith always has an object, and the object of our faith is Jesus. He is the one to whom we direct our confidence and our trust. And that's what makes faith different from hope and optimism. Um, hope and optimism are not bad things, they're just not faith. Uh, and, and what is different is that hope and optimism tend to focus on a particular outcome, whereas faith focuses on an object. And the best way to kind of explain it would be to say, you know, when you came in this morning, you made a decision to sit in that seat that you're occupying at the moment. And when you did that, you expressed both hope and faith. You were hoping that that seat would hold you up and you were optimistic that it would, but you did not express your faith until you lowered yourself into that seat and put your confidence in the, structural, the structural integrity of that seat, right? That was an act of faith. And so that's why in the context of Christian life, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, because He is the object of our faith, regardless of the outcome. So even if putting your faith in Jesus lands you in jail, then so be it. We still keep our eyes on Jesus because faith is about the object, not about the outcome. All right, number two, faith is not an immunization against the realities of life. Can I get an amen? I know there was an underwhelming amen, because this is not the kind of truth that's going to make you want to jump up and down and kind of do cartwheels down the aisles. But this is truth that will set you free. Faith is not an immunization against the realities of life. It just simply means faith is not a get out of jail free card for Christians. Faith is not an assurance that you're going to have a pain free, pleasure filled existence till the end of your days. If you are a human being, whether you are a person of faith or not, you are subject to the realities of human experience and human emotion. We all experience life. And that means all of us are going to get old. 
And we're all going to experience sickness and disease. And we're all going to lose some of our faculties. We're all going to lose our sight and maybe lose our hearing. And maybe, God forbid, lose control of our bladders and our bowels. And we're going to lose our hair. And we're going to lose some of our independence. And we're going to struggle with pain and with sorrow and with grief. And we're going to get sick. And sometimes disease is going to enter our body. And that is the reality of human experience. Uh, Life is beautiful and brilliant in so many ways, but it's also broken. And we're subject to that brokenness. So faith is, is not a vaccination against that reality. But for us as followers of Jesus, the difference is we get to navigate all those difficulties and adversities in relationship with the living God who has committed himself to being present with us in them, to working with those situations, to redeeming them, using them for his glory and for our good. So faith is not an immunization against the realities of life, but it is the assurance God is with us in those realities. All right, number three, faith is not a mechanism by which we leverage God. In other words, faith is not a button you push or a lever you pull in order to get stuff from God. Faith is not a check that you cash at heaven's bank. No, faith is not a a wand that you kind of wave in order to wield some impersonal power in order to extract things from God. Faith is fundamentally relational, not mechanical, and it's certainly not transactional. And if you try to use faith in a mechanical or transactional way, you're going to end up like seriously disappointed and seriously frustrated because faith does not work that way. Faith is a relational trust in the living God, in His character, in His integrity, in His goodness, and His faithfulness, right? So don't try to use faith mechanically or transactionally. All right, number four, faith is not the absence of fear or doubt. Even though faith is the opposite of fear and doubt, faith is not the absence of fear and doubt. It just simply means that you and I are going to experience fear. There are moments where we are going to doubt and we're going to find our hearts questioning. That is what it means to be human. And so faith is just simply the decision or the choice to trust God in the presence of fear and doubt, to put your confidence in the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God and the integrity of God, despite the realities of our fears and our doubts. And so if you are feeling fearful for any reason, if you ever find yourself questioning or having doubts, it does not mean you are faithless. It just means you are human. And as a human, in the midst of that reality, you can still choose to put your confidence and your trust in the goodness of God. And then number five, last but not least, faith is the means, but life is the end. By that, I simply mean faith is not an end in itself. God doesn't call us to the life of faith just so that we can experience faith. Faith leads to life, to a particular kind and quality of life that the Bible calls eternal or abundant life. It's life that's kind of characterized by relationship with the living God. Uh, and, And that relationship is characterized by intimacy with Him, dependency on Him, and obedience to Him. Those are the three defining characteristics of the kind of relationship that God is inviting all of us to step into. Intimacy with Him, dependency on Him, and obedience to Him. And all of that is made possible by faith. Uh, The Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. I love that name. It's a great name if you're looking for a name for your kid. Habakkuk. The Old Testament prophet Habakkuk said, The just shall live by faith. Uh, The just meaning those who are righteous, those who have been declared right with God. He said, The just shall live by faith. That implies two things. Number one, that the just receive life by faith. They're made alive by faith. But it also means that they live life by faith. In other words, faith is both the doorway and the pathway 
into the kingdom of God. It is the means by which we come in a right relationship with God, and it is means by which that relationship is sustained. So God calls us to faith so that we can experience life, life abundant, life eternal, which is nothing less than life in relationship with God. So if we were to sum up what faith is, we can say faith is this relational trust in God. It kind of begins with belief in God. It culminates in loyalty to God, but it is fundamentally relational. And uh, through the course of the series, we've identified what we've called the five faith catalysts. Five things that when they come together, just result in a deepening, growing, strengthening, resilient kind of faith that is capable of standing up to the, the brutality of the reality of life. And uh, those five faith catalysts are, they should be up on screen behind me. Number one, personal ministry, which is simply stepping out of your comfort zone, taking whatever God has invested in you and using it to serve others and to bless others. Number two, private discipline, which is submitting to the demands of discipleship and embracing spiritual habits and practices like prayer and worship and fellowship and meditation and silence and solitude, all those wonderful spiritual disciplines that help facilitate that relationship with God, intimacy with, dependency on, and obedience to. So private discipline. Number three, practical teaching. And the emphasis here is on not just the receiving of that teaching, but the application of that teaching, the wisdom of God's Word, the truth of the teaching of Jesus. When you take it and you apply it to your everyday living, it builds strong, resilient faith. Uh, number four, providential relationships, meaning the significant people that God brings into your life um, through whom your faith is impacted and influenced. Uh, people who, by way of their example or their encouragement, uh, strengthen and deepen your faith. Um, if you think about it this way, if I asked you today to give me the title of the five sermons that have most positively and profoundly impacted your faith journey, I reckon you could, couldn't probably give me two, right? If I asked you to give me the names of five people, who have profoundly and positively influenced your faith journey, you could probably do that pretty easily, right? So God brings people into your life providentially, and through their lives, they influence your faith. And then number five, last but not least, pivotal circumstance. We're talking about defining moments and significant life-changing experiences that either catalyze faith or deepen it and strengthen it. That's where we're going to go this morning. Right, now I remember a number of years ago when I was uh, just at the beginning of my faith journey. Um, I was a young man, I had just made a decision to put my faith and trust in Jesus and I was pretty excited and enthusiastic about that. And I remember getting invited by a friend to a conference that was being held at a church in Johannesburg, South Africa, called Rhema. And you may or may not know about this particular church, but it's a really large church. Uh, there are tens of thousands of people who call this church home. Uh, and to give you some idea of the scope and scale of it, they have an auditorium that is a kind of single story, kind of amphitheater type setup that can seat 7,000 people. And they run multiple services on a weekend. So we're talking about a big church. So I went along um, one night to this conference that was happening and there was an evangelist by the name of Tim Story who was preaching. And uh, at the end of his message, he kind of delivered the gospel and invited people to respond and put their faith and trust in Jesus. And then he invited people to come down to the front of the church for prayer for healing. And so we were standing in the crowd and people had come forward in their hundreds and, and, and Tim was praying for them and others were praying for them and the band was playing and we were worshiping. And, and a couple of minutes into all of this, uh, two people walked up onto stage carrying a stretcher and there was a woman lying on the stretcher and they put her down on the stage. And I kind of thought, well, this is interesting. Like, I wonder what's going to happen here, right? 
So I'm kind of worshiping God. I've got one eye on God and one eye on the stage. And I'm kind of like curious as to what's going to go down. And a couple of moments into this, I see Ray McCauley, who's the pastor of this church, get up and he walks up on a stage and he sits down next to this lady. And her son, who was maybe four or five years old, had kind of got up and walked onto stage and sat down next to his mom and had taken her hand. And I remember Pastor Ray kind of recounting this after this particular experience. He said when he saw that little boy get up and go sit down next to his mom, his heart was just moved with such compassion. He said, God, you've got to do something for this lady today. And so he had got up, walked up on the stage, kind of knelt down next to her and began praying for her for a few minutes. And after a while, he called over to an usher and one of the ushers came alongside and he and, he and this usher lifted this woman up off the stretcher. And Ray put one arm around her shoulder and the usher put another arm around her and they lifted her up onto her feet and they began to walk in a circle around on the stage. And her feet were kind of just like dragging behind her. Now, I didn't know this at the time. We found out this later, but she had been in a car accident and was paralyzed from the waist down. So she couldn't walk. So they were carrying her around in a circle and her legs were kind of dragging behind her. And then suddenly she just began to put one foot in front of the other and she began to walk by herself. And Ray took his arm off and the usher took his arm off and this woman stood completely by herself and began to walk around the stage. Well, needless to say, the roof nearly came off the auditorium. Can you imagine 7,000 people kind of erupting into rapturous praise at this unbelievable phenomenon that was happening on stage. Uh, Ray began to jump up and down. And if you don't know, Ray McCauley is a big man. He used to be a bodybuilder, used to train with Arnold Schwarzenegger. So he's a big unit, right? And he was jumping up and down on stage. I, th I thought he was going to go through the stage, right? The usher's jumping up and down, the band's playing, everybody's celebrating. And this woman is walking, right? Carries her stretcher back down the stage onto the ground. And I remember as a young follower of Jesus thinking, oh my goodness, if God can do that for her, man, he can do anything. I remember feeling my, my faith was just fueled right in that moment. Just an injection of confidence and trust and hope in God. And I remember assuming from that kind of moment on that those would be the types of experiences that would continue to fuel my faith. I remember thinking, well, Surely, you know, when God shows up in sovereign, supernatural, miraculous ways and phenomenal and spectacular acts of healing and deliverance and provision, those things are going to kind of energize and fuel my faith. And I, I kind of equally assume that the opposite would be true, that the experiences of life that would be hard and frustrating and difficult, right? The sickness and the disease and the grief and the conflict and the despair and the disappointment. I assume that those would be the things that would undermine my faith. That those would be the things that are detrimental to faith. And I kind of had evidence for that assumption because I had seen people go through things in life and had expected God to do something or to show up in a certain way and He hadn't. And it had shipwrecked their faith. They had lost confidence in God because God did not do what they thought He should do when they thought He should do it. And so I kind of assumed that this is what's going to energize my faith and that's what's going to undermine my faith. And so I went into this faith journey expecting to see lots of this and, and hoping to see a lot less of this. But friends, after 30 years of following Jesus and 48 years of life on this planet, I've come to realize how wrong I was and how naive that assumption was. And that's not to say that these experiences of divine providence and divine intervention, supernatural manifestations of God's power, His healing and His providence, it's not to say that those things aren't good for our faith. Of course they are. When you pray and God answers in the affirmative, when you believe God for something and He comes through for you, when you're trusting God to speak or guide or lead or provide and He does, of course that fuels your confidence. That's good for your trust in faith. 
But our friends, if we're going to be honest with each other here today, I think we'd have to acknowledge that those experiences are the exception, not the rule. Those happen occasionally, but they don't happen frequently. Life is more characterized by much more of the opposite, right? So much more of the reality of the human experience is actually the reality of hardship. It's suffering. It's difficulty. It's loss. It's grief. It's pain. It's conflict. It's adversity. But friends, what I have discovered is that those realities and those circumstances and those experiences can be just as faith enriching and faith enhancing and faith strengthening as those other experiences. And I've discovered that not only through personal experience, but I learned this lesson through a man that we have come to know and love and appreciate so much as followers of Jesus, a man by the name of the Apostle Paul. And of course, if you have been a Christian for a long time, you know him well, because we talk about him a lot and we read a lot about what he has to say. But if you're not a follower of Jesus and you've never heard about this guy, uh, Paul was one of the most influential leaders, I guess, of the early church. And he was a man who started out his adult life hating Christians. He persecuted the Christian faith and put many Christians into jail and presided over their deaths. And then one day, Paul had this remarkable encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Jesus literally appeared to him, and Paul's life was turned upside down. He had a 180-degree change of heart, and he went from being one of the most ardent persecutors of the church to being one of the most ardent defenders of the faith. And he wrote much of our New Testament scripture, and pretty late on in his life, when he was about in his mid-60s, um, not long before he died, Paul wrote a letter to a group of Christians living in a town called Philippi. And this letter is called Philippians. And what is interesting about this letter is that it was written while Paul was in jail. So Paul was imprisoned for his faith in Jesus. The whole Christian world was suffering severe persecution under the Roman Empire. And Paul, because he would not renounce his allegiance to Jesus, was thrown in prison. And so he writes this letter from jail, knowing that he's about to die. And what's fascinating about the letter is it's jam-packed full of joy, right? In fact, it's often referred to as the joyful letter. Because from start to finish, it's just gratitude and appreciation and life and thanksgiving and joy, which is a little unusual given where he's writing it from and what's about to happen to him. But listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 to 14, because this is perhaps one of the most profound and important statements in all of Scripture. Paul says, now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace God and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord. In other words, have been strengthened in their faith and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, Paul's referring to two very important things here. And the first is what I like to refer to as his situation. And his situation is kind of expressed in that statement, what has happened to me? Paul is in prison. He is awaiting trial. We know he is months, if not days away from execution. He knows he's about to die. And Paul is saying, this has happened to me. I didn't want it. I didn't ask for it. I didn't deserve it. I didn't anticipate it. It just happened to me. And I think, again, if we're honest with each other today, we have to acknowledge that inevitably in our journey of life, all of us are going to find ourselves in situations where, like Paul was saying, this has just happened to me. Unwanted, undeserved, unexpected. It just happened to me. This situation or this circumstance that I'm in. But notice here that Paul does not lament his situation. He doesn't complain about his situation. 
He doesn't bemoan his situation. He doesn't regret his situation. In fact, he doesn't even describe his situation. Paul does not give the Philippian believers an assessment of his situation or a description of his, his situation. He gives them his interpretation of it. And that interpretation is revealed or reflected in that statement has actually served to advance the gospel. Paul says, what has happened to me, my situation, has actually served to advance our cause. This is actually working out to the benefit of the kingdom of God and to the advantage of the gospel because now the gospel has gone all the way into Caesar's household. The very person who's persecuting and oppressing the Christian faith has inadvertently brought the gospel right into his own living room. And it's now percolating and permeating amongst the palace guard. And not only that, but all the believers here in Rome have been strengthened in their faith. And they are now preaching the gospel with greater confidence and with greater boldness and greater courage because of my chains. In other words, Paul's saying, look, if you look at me in prison and that's all you see, you're going to be discouraged. You're going to be disheartened. But I want you to see something else. There's another perspective I want you to have here, right? This has actually worked out for the advancement of the gospel. This is working out for the kingdom of God. In other words, Paul's saying, hey, God is not punishing me. God is positioning me to be able to get this gospel into the very heart of the empire that is seeking to crush us and oppose us, right? Paul is interpreting his situation. So, so your situation is the what of your circumstance, but your interpretation is the so what. It's the meaning that you give it, the meaning that you assign to it. And friends, what I believe God wants us to know and understand from Paul's life and example here is this, that what is most important to us in life, particularly in relation to faith, is not the situation we find ourselves in, but the interpretation that we give it, the meaning that we apply to it, what we derive from it. And the truth of the matter is you can endure almost any what if you have a God-centered, Christ-orientated, faithful, so what? Paul is interpreting his what through the lens of his identity, his theology, his calling, and he's coming up with an interpretation that is true to what God is doing in the moment. And friends, that is why two people can go through exactly the same situation and experience the same circumstance and have two completely different experiences. Because one person will go through that experience of loss or grief or sorrow, and they will interpret it as God is punishing me. God has abandoned me. God doesn't love me. Maybe God hates me. Maybe I've done something to offend God. That's your interpretation of that situation. But that interpretation is based on your fallible, incorrect human assumptions. Right? Somebody else going through exactly the same situation will look at that situation and say, well, I know God loves me. I'm already persuaded God is for me. Now, I don't know why this is happening to me, but knowing the character and the integrity of God, I know that God is going to redeem this situation and He's going to use it for my good and His glory. So I'm going to trust Him in it. That's a very different interpretation to God has abandoned me or God doesn't love me. And so, friends, when it comes to the fueling of your faith and the deepening and the strengthening of your faith, the issue is not the situation, 
It is the interpretation you apply to the situation. And faith will not always change your situation, but it will always change your interpretation of the situation and the meaning that you give it. So the question then becomes, all right, if, if, if what determines whether or not these realities of life strengthen my faith or undermine it is the interpretation I apply to the situation, then the question becomes, how do I imply a right and good and true interpretation how do i avoid the kind of imperfect incorrect fallible human assumptions that we tend to project onto our situation how do i make a good right and true interpretation of my situation and the answer is good theology good theology right thinking about god um, we talk about providential relationship i had a providential relationship in my life in the form of a a spiritual mentor and my supervisor for my master's um, project, uh, a man by the name of Paul Alexander. And when I was studying my master's, Paul was a, was a great friend and a great help to me, both in the study um, of that project and in my journey of faith. And I remember Paul telling me a story about a crisis that he and his family went through when their 17, I think 17 or 18-year-old son was in an, a car accident. And he came very close to dying. Uh, he went into hospital and was on life support for months and months and months, and the doctors were literally fighting to save his life day by day. Fortunately, he survived, and he, he made it through. But I remember Paul saying to me, Tim, that was the first real life-and-death type crisis that our family had to navigate. And he said, I remember thinking to myself when going through that crisis, I am so grateful for good theology. I'm so grateful that it is already established in my heart, God loves me, God is for me, God is with me, God is, is committed to me, because at no point in that crisis did I ever find myself questioning the love of God or the character of God or the integrity of God. It just did not cross my mind. And when I reflect back on it and I think on it, I realized it was because of good theology. Why thinking about God? Understanding who God is and knowing what God has already done. And listen to how this kind of works for the Apostle Paul. I'll give you a couple of examples here. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1 to 5, Paul's writing now much, much earlier on in his Christian faith, long before the letter to the Philippians. And in Romans 5, verse 1 to 5, listen to what Paul says. He says, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us back into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. I mean, if you know, that's good theology right there, right? Paul's saying, I know God loves us. I know God is for us. I know God is with us because he's already demonstrated that in what he did in and through the person of Jesus. There is not a more profound and compelling demonstration of God's love than what he was willing to do in and through Jesus on the cross of Calvary and through the resurrection. So Paul says, I know God loves us, right? Now notice what he says. He goes on in the very next verse to say, we can therefore rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. For we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us, right? We know this. He's not saying, I hope God loves us. Uh, loves us. I, I suspect He might love us. He says, we know. We're so fully persuaded. We're convinced God loves us. Not only because of what He has done for us through Jesus, but because of what He has done in giving us the Holy Spirit. 
to fill our hearts with His love. Right? Paul's saying, I am already persuaded and fully convinced God loves us. So when I do suffer, when I do experience loss and grief and pain and affliction, I know God is just working in and through those imperfect realities to bring about a change of heart, to deepen my character, to strengthen my faith, to make me more like Christ. And that can only ever be a good thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 to 9, in similar vein, Paul says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Wow. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt so overwhelmed? so burdened that you despaired of life itself? Have you ever felt so tired that you want to give up? If so, you're in good company because the Apostle Paul said, we felt like that. We were so afflicted, so burdened, so harassed, so oppressed, so persecuted. We felt like we had received the sentence of death. We despaired of life itself. We felt like we were going to die and we kind of hoped we would. That's some pretty severe suffering. But notice what Paul says. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul saying, yeah, that was hard, man. That was hard, but we still know at the core of our being how God is good and how God loves us and how God is for us and how God has already committed Himself to the task of redeeming and reconciling all things, to liberating the world from the tyranny of sin and death. And yes, in the here and now in this life, we still wrestle with the residual effect that sin and death has had on this life. Yes, we suffer and yes, we experience pain and yes, sometimes we despair of life itself. But at the core of our beings is an unchangeable, immovable truth that our God is good and our God is with us and our God is for us. And if you go to the end of the book and you read the last page, you see we win. <laughs> Paul says, we know, we know. And despite this hardship and this adversity, God is using it, redeeming it, working with it, working in it and around it to strengthen us, deepen us, and, and help us to be more reliant on Him. So friends, the point is, and the reality is, every single one of us, even as faithful followers of Jesus, are gonna have to endure the realities of life in all its brilliance and in all its brokenness, in all its beauty and in all its complexity. And it does mean we are gonna suffer adversity and difficulty. But whether or not that adversity and difficulty makes your faith or breaks your faith, depends not on the situation itself, but entirely on the interpretation you apply to the situation. And that interpretation has to be seen through the lens of good theology. Not your broken, fallen, fallible human assumption. The truth of what God has revealed about Himself already in His Word through Jesus, through the cross and through the Holy Spirit. Learn to see your circumstance, those defining moments, through the lens of good theology. And that, friends, will be the difference between great faith and no faith. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. All right, let's all stand up to our feet this morning. We're going to pray together. And what I want to invite you to do, if you're comfortable doing so, is just bow your heads and close your eyes. And in just a moment, I'm going to just pray a prayer of benediction and blessing over all of us as we go, which as you know is our custom here at The Rocks. But before we do that, I'm so conscious today that there would be people here who are in a very real sense facing the kind of situation that Paul was facing. Something has happened to you. You didn't ask for it. You didn't deserve it. But it has happened. And perhaps the intensity and the severity of that circumstance has left you despairing of life. Maybe you, there have been days where you felt like, I'm not sure I can carry on. Maybe hey, there have been nights where you have cried into your pillow and you've poured out your heart to God and you've hoped and you've prayed and you've trusted. Friends, today I believe that God presence of His Holy Spirit just wants to draw near to you today. To assure you of His love for you, His compassion over you, His presence with you, His commitment to you. And although God is not going to wave a magic wand over human experience, God has committed Himself to being a very present, constant source of grace, wisdom, providence, strength, protection, guidance, comfort to lead us ultimately through this life into the next, into eternity and into the redeemed future that He has secured for us through Jesus. And so that's you today. What I want you to do, if you're saying, Tim, that's me, I, I kind of feel very much overwhelmed by what I'm going through right now. Would you include me in this prayer? I'm gonna ask you to either just raise your hand or place your hand on your heart, whatever you feel most comfortable doing. This is not for me. This is just a demonstrable way of responding to what God is saying to you today and what He's doing in you in this moment. And God sees you. He knows you. He knows exactly what you're going through. And we together as your brothers and sisters in Christ are going to put our faith together and we're going to believe with you for God to show Himself strong on your behalf. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more great resources and to keep yourself up to date, head to our website. Visit the Rocks dot church